Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical research. Today's interview is with Alexis McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Asian Studies at the University of Connecticut. His new book, Philosophy of the Ancient Maya, Lords of Time, is just out from Lexington Books. The ancient Maya are popularly known for their calendar, but their concept of time and the metaphysics surrounding that conception are not. In his new book, McLeod reconstructs an ancient Mayan metaphysical system based on key texts and other artifacts, plus using analogies with ancient Chinese philosophical thought. On his view, the Maya held that we can understand everything in temporal terms, but that everything does not reduce to time, and that humans have a role in constructing manifest time and organizing the manifest world. McLeod also considers Mayan views of essences, truth, personal identity, and meaning. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Alexis McLeod. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to um, have you here to talk about your new book, Philosophy of the Ancient Maya, which is, um, I mean, it's f- for me at least, uh, it's, it's kind of a whole new uh, area of philosophy that you know I really don't know a whole lot about, and I don't think a lot of people do, because as one colleague of mine said, did the Maya have a philosophy? Um, so, uh, you know, what you do here is kind of put something on the table, do what I think of as a reconstruction, because the source, the sources aren't, you know, as, you know, they're not abundant, and it's all, you know, fairly, um, you know, ancient, um, you know, writings and, uh, you know, stone tablets and things like that. Um, before we get into, you know, how you reconstruct the philosophy or the possible philosophy of the of the Maya? Um, could you say a bit about yourself? Um, you know, how did you get to philosophy? Um, to the you know to being a historian, basically a philosophy, and then to writing this particular book. So um, I came to philosophy in a in somewhat strange way. I actually came through uh, Chinese, um, so I studied uh, Chinese language um, when I was an undergraduate. Um, and I was taking, I took a medieval philosophy course and was kind of interested in, in philosophy as well, but discovered uh, Chinese philosophy um, in Confucianism and Taoism and the early Chinese texts through uh, some classes that were, that were connected to my uh, uh, study in Chinese and really just kind of fell in love with those, uh, with those texts. Um, and so I transferred into uh, philosophy um, and started at, back where I was an undergraduate at University of Maryland that was in the philosophy department. It was, it was mainly Western contemporary analytic uh, stuff, a few hist- history classes as well. Um, but I, I kind of discovered that there was this alternative way of uh, encountering philosophy through uh, Chinese philosophy. 
and that kind of got me into into that uh, going in that direction. And so that's what ended up, I ended up uh, focusing on was uh, Chinese classical Chinese philosophy. And um, I kind of I I, I kind of I get bored easily with uh, with projects, so I kind of wander a lot. Um, in history in general, I, I gener- tend to like kind of the the uh, the things that aren't covered as much, right, in the in the ancient world and uh, historical uh, philosophical texts. And kind of di- I discovered uh, Maya thought um, actually working on um, astronomy. So I, I've had an interest in uh, astronomy for for years. I actually started in school in in, uh, in physics with the idea that I was going to study astronomy. Um, and I was working on a book on ancient astronomy, um, which came out actually a couple years ago now, um, and and discovered the uh, the early Maya, um, and because there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of discussion of uh, astronomy in the in the Maya texts that are available now, such as the uh, that we have today, such as the Dresden Codex. Um, and as I was looking at Maya astronomy, I kept thinking it would be really cool if there was a philosophical um, if there was philosophical thought in early in, in the Maya tradition as well. But I kind of despaired that, well, we don't have the text, right? They're gone, and, and there is no philosophical tradition. Um, and the more I learned, I, was, I started reading about the Maya and work that um, uh, anthropologists have done on the Maya. And the more I learned about it, I learned there, there is a philosophical tradition um, in, in, my, in my thought, um, not only in, uh, in the texts that are available, such as the, the four um, uh, codices, the, pre, the post-classic codices from before Spanish contact, but also in post-contact texts that um, that recount kind of earlier stories, and also in oral traditions, and also in on kind of on stele and 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 through kind of uh, constructions uh, like buildings and things like this, and other other aspects of the culture. There's a rich philosophical tradition that we can uh, that we can see operated there. And anthropologists have actually uh, discussed some of this, right? And some of the work they've they've written have have have, uh, have gotten into the issue of Maya philosophy. And so I thought that you know this is this is something that philosophers aren't working on in part because we don't know it's there, um, and so that was kind of, that kind of really sent me down the the path of, of of trying to to learn as much as I could about the Maya and uh, and then develop what eventually became this book. Great. Um, so t- um, you know, on the assumption that most listeners um, are are sort of in in my position at the at the very least, um, can you provide us a, a little bit of you know, background about, you know, who are the people that we're talking about at what, you know, timeline, you know, when, when are this, are we talking about the civil, their civilization? Um, you know, you note, uh, there's, there's lots of really great drawings and, um, other illustrations in the book of their glyphs, you know, their, their written language. Um, and then, um, so tell us a little bit about them and the, um, the, the evidence, you know, the texts, the you know the the stele the you know all that stuff um, you know that you're that you're using as the touchstones for developing um, your um, your metaphysics of them. Sure. So the um, the people that that I'm discussing in the book the the Maya people um, uh, are still there today. Um, there's there's this kind of uh, older view that the Maya somehow disappeared or there was a collapse of Maya civilization. Uh, it's been continuous. Um, until till, until today, uh, and the uh, the region that's the Maya region is uh, roughly in uh, the southern part, uh, the southeast part of Mexico, uh, Gua- all of Guatemala, uh, Belize, and then the western parts of uh, El Salvador and uh, and Honduras. Um, there were a number of different uh, cities in this uh, in this region that um, during the what's called the Classic period of uh, in, uh, Maya culture, from around the third century to the tenth century CE. 
um, a lot of these uh, familiar features of, of uh, classical Maya culture, such as the focus on calendrics, um, the construction of these um, elaborate elaborate cities, um, and the kind of the idea of the ruler, um, the various kinds of famous, uh, well-known cities like Tikal uh, that's in uh, that is in contemporary uh, Guatemala. Um, these these uh, became became central right, in this in this period, right? So most of the what I talk about in the book, much of it originated in the classic period um, and in the pre-classic. And there's also in the post-classic period right, a kind of continuation and development uh, of these ideas. And even in the uh, the post-contact period after the Spanish uh, came in the in the 16th century, you still get kind of renewal a renewal of Maya thought and uh, different kinds of different ways of thinking about these. Um, these classical ideas, um, which resulted in uh, what what is what we see today, certain kinds of philosophical and religious uh, syncretism right, that involve kind of additions of aspects of Christianity to to Maya thought, in which you get these really kind of interesting hybrids. Uh, so the 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 um, the languages, as I was as I was talking about the the, the Maya people, the uh, the languages of the these these texts, uh, the texts that we have, uh, there are four um, codical texts that remain. Um, most of there were there were many more likely written uh, these bark paper texts, um, but most of them were lost uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, so during the early part of the Spanish contact, the some of the um, the Spanish destroyed the text, thinking of them as as kind of uh, uh, anti-Christian in some way. Um, but I think the importance of that, although many texts were lost in this way, um, the importance is probably overstated. Right, this idea that uh, Diego de Landa, for example, is the infamous figure. Uh, associated with this burning of, of books. Um, it's one big problem in the Maya region is that these bark paper books are in a in most what's mainly rainforest region and so they don't store well as the, as texts do in say the you know in, in the Middle East, right, in which it's dry, right, and text can remain for many years. So that's again, another problem. Um, luckily we do have uh, a number of texts that are on um, on stele, uh, on uh, constructions, on buildings, on uh, stele that were erected by rulers to uh, to commemorate certain certain victories and or certain uh, accessions to rule, things like this, and then on on things like pottery um, and other constructions, we have uh, we have lots of glyphs uh, and texts that are mainly the stele texts are mainly so uh, are mainly concerned with uh, with dates uh, of 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 battles and of, of accessions, things like this. Um, in addition to that, we have um, as I mentioned before, we have the post contacts te- texts, and these are texts like the the famous uh, Kiche Maya Popovu, or the uh, the books of Chilambalam, uh, which recount uh, stories, rituals, uh, kind of philosophical positions that you find earlier in the uh, in the Maya tradition. So, the, the texts like the Popovu certainly involve elements of uh, things like Christianity, but they also involve these kind of early la- earlier layers uh, of Maya thought. Um, and one of the ways that we can demonstrate that is that a lot of the stories that we see at the Popovu. Um, have these kind of um, they're represented in in earlier uh, artwork, right? So we see images of say the hero twins from the Popovu in classic period uh, classic period artwork and various kind of stories um, that we find in in the text. So the w- one of the nice things actually about um, working in this area right now is that uh, it's relatively recently that that a vast kind of majority of the glyphs have been have been deciphered. Um, it used to be the case not too long ago that that much of this much of these texts that we have uh, couldn't couldn't be read, 
Um, and so that was part of the issue that it wasn't just kind of a lack of text, but also we didn't know how to read them. Um, and so epigraphers and, and others who kind of in, interpret this stuff have, have now begun to really understand what's going on um, and how to read these texts. And in addition, um, archaeologists continually find uh, more material um, in the Maya region. There was actually recently this, uh, I don't know if you saw this in, I think it's National Geographic had this, um, about the, the, this uh, LIDAR, I think they called it, a kind of radar that they showed that, uh, a kind of technique, and they showed that the Maya cities in, in, in Mesoamerica were actually much more vast than we previously believed, which, which, unco- which shows us a number of possible sites that haven't, haven't even been touched yet by archaeologists. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's definitely an exciting time to be, to be working on this area because a lot is really starting to be understood uh, now. Right? Yeah, no, I, I did, um, you know, one of the questions sort of was the extent to which we might expect that the, um, the you know, various sorts of textual evidence um, uh, is, is really just the tip of the iceberg, how much more we can expect to, to find at this point. And I think your answer seems to be, uh, well, we don't really know. We, we could actually find quite a bit more than what we've got now. Absolutely. And this is, this is, this is one of the things I keep like every day I keep up with. Maybe they'll uncover some interesting Maya text, right? but they're, they're constantly, it's constantly happening, right? You'll find, you'll see some information about archaeologists who uncover some new stele, right? And people are reading it and it's, it's, it's very exciting to find these. It happens in Chinese philosophy as well, but not quite as much as it seems to happen in the, in, in the Maya world. So, I mean, one of the, you know, before you kind of get into the the details of the various aspects of the the Mayan um, philosophy and primarily metaphysical issues. Um, uh, you talk about your what you call your analogical method, right, for reconstructing. So, you know, given the fact that there's just at this point not a whole there's there's more than we thought, but there's still not a lot um, available for uh, for un- for for interpreting right the way we might interpret some other historical figure like Descartes or something. Um, um, so a lot of this involves a bit of uh, extrapolating, and you and you rely on your background in um, in ancient Chinese philosophical work to to do that reconstruction. Um, so one of the you know you you raise and address a number of 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 problems for this method as well. I mean you know the obvious sort of question of well you know, maybe you've put together something that makes sense, but how do we know that that's what they, you know, that that was their, you know, metaphysics, um, or just the dependence on the fact that, you know, your expertise is in Chinese philosophy. And so that's a natural place for you to begin, you know, kind of for your reconstruction, you know, somebody else might have a different way of putting it together. So could you um, say a bit about, you know, your the analogical method and then how you address you know the the concerns that might be raised about that yeah so the uh, the analogical method i mean I, t- I see it as a kind of additional tool in the tool in the toolkit um that historians of, of philosophy can use to try to construct um plausible um uh interpretations of of these systems that can be used not only in the case of uh, of maya thought but in case of you know chinese thought or or kind of early modern um, European thought um, and, and any different kind of uh, area of the history of philosophy, and I think it's it really is something that you see often in um, in the history of philosophy, maybe more than we recognize. Uh, we I, it seems to me that we already kind of implicitly use it in a lot of ways when we do things like um, call the, the one one thing that you used to commonly see or you see sometimes still is a discussion of early Confucianism as say virtue ethics, right? or when we use kind of terms or concepts 
that are part of our kind of contemporary philosophical tradition to understand things that are going on in um, in early China or in uh, in Maya thought or any other any other place. And it seems like to me what we're doing there is we're reading these texts, we're looking at this tradition, these traditions using a particular frame. Uh, and so the, the analogical method is a kind of way of, of doing something like this, right? It, it, it goes a bit beyond this in that it, there's a kind of assumption behind it, which I get into to some extent in the book, that um, human minds tend to work generally in the same way. Right? And so when we see these systems develop, um, we, what, we know, what I notice, at least, is that these systems seem to develop in somewhat similar ways um, across traditions. They're not always exactly the same, of course, um, but the, the way that, um, that you kind of construct a correlative mes- metaphysics, for example, in early China, tends to look a lot like the ways that we see these develop in, in uh, other areas uh, as well. And so if we can make, uh, if we can use these, this kind of interpretive frame of early China or of certain aspects of Western thought to make sense of things that we, that aren't quite clear in Maya thought because there, there aren't enough texts or um, just because we, you know, we lost, we've lost so much that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't show that, that this is necessarily what the Maya held, but I think it gives us a kind of a plausible interpretation. That's one, that's one possibility, which I think ends up being really no more than we can do with most of our, our historical interpretations. Because when we have to give interpretations, the idea is that um, there's something that hasn't been said, right? or there's something that's left unclear. And so our interpretations often are constructed on the basis of, say, something like the, um, the principle of charity, in which we just try to make the most sense of, say, Plato's view, right? to, make it the, to make it the most plausible we can, right? which is another kind of, uh, of method um, that doesn't show that this is necessarily what Plato or anyone else held, but it shows that here's what a consistent view might look like, something like this. And so that's what I take it that I'm kind of doing with the, uh, with, with the analogical method, is that is offering an, just another tool that we can use to build uh, consistent interpretations, and also one that might help us to kind of understand how these, how these various ideas emerge in similar ways from in, within different traditions. So it, it kind of plays this role of um, helping uh, the comparative philosophical project as well. Um, that, and that's an issue you get to actually at the very end of the book, um, but we, we can we can get to that uh, in a bit. So let's get to the, um, um, you know, the 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 defense and articulation of the metaphysics. Um, so the subtitle of the book is, you know, Lords of Time, and and you know, if if anybody knows anything about the Maya who isn't a Mayanist or something like that, it's it's the idea of this, you know, Mayan calendar and the whole idea of calendars. And uh, in fact, that what you point out, erroneous um, idea that, you know, you had this calendar that said the end of days and, and there was going to be like literally the end of the world and they didn't quite happen. Um, but in any case, I mean, time is clearly a central concept in, in their philosophy. And so there's a lot of different aspects to that that you talk about in the book, which um uh, you know, there's not just one question there about time, but let me just start, you know, just to start us off. Um, uh, what What is time, you know, as uh, they're conceiving of it? Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll ask about the calendrics, you know, after that. But let's let's just start with, you know, the basic question, you know, what is time for them? Yeah, so uh, time, it plays a lot of uh, different roles in, uh, in early Maya thought. One of the, I think, one of the kind of central roles that it plays is to help them understand how to make sense of, of change, um, and also how to make sense of the uh, the human role in uh, c- 
constructing or in completing the, the cosmos, which is actually something that, that I noticed is kind of similar to some of the things that you see in the uh, early uh, Chinese tradition. Um, so the, 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 the title, uh, the, the Lords of Time title, actually comes from the, uh, the idea of the ruler in, in uh, early Maya thought, the, the how, and the role that the ruler has in structuring and keeping the sacred, uh, sacred time. And you see a kind of identification of rulers with time. So time, in, in one sense, uh, and this is part of the reason that some read it as this kind of uh, fundamental uh, uh, constituent uh, of the, uh, the world, uh, time is a way to um, make sense of what exists in the world. Right? So the idea is that, so I, I don't understand it as a kind of, um, as, as something that everything reduces to in the way some do, but the idea is that everything can be understood in terms of its, of its kind of uh, description as far as it, it, is something, it is something like time. Um, so the, in, the, uh, in many of the early texts, and in the Popol Vuh, for example, we see this kind of um, this position that humans have a role in constructing uh, and manifesting time. So you have, um, at the beginning, right, there's a story in the Popol Vuh where the, where the gods are creating, uh, creating the world and they create humanity. And one of the things that, so there, it's a very famous story, that they try to create humanity, these, these kind of wooden beings, and they, they aren't successful and they have to redo it over and over again. And the idea is that what caused them to fail in this creation of humanity is that each of these earlier versions of what they were trying to attain couldn't do what they called keeping the days, right? These things, these wooden creatures they, they made couldn't keep the days and thus they were unsuccessful as, as humans. And then finally, when they get to create humans, they're successful in keeping the days. But part of the idea being that humans play this role in somehow completing what the gods have done, right? The gods have supplied this kind of basic substrate of, of nature and that humans construct this into things in certain ways. And time is one of the central um, things that they construct right out of this kind of basic, uh, what we might call ground of being, something like this. This is part of the reason that you see um, the role even today of the daykeeper right, in, um, uh, in the Yucatan, for example, in, in other areas in, uh, in the Maya region as being uh, essential, right? the daykeeper having this kind of central ritual role with the idea that keeping the days right, and having the kind of uh, the, the fixing the sacred calendar is not only an act of a kind of ritual religious act, but it's also an act that can, that helps um, construct the world in a certain way, right? That, that contributes to what I call in the book, uh, continual, continual creation. And so time, I think for the early Maya really uh, represents the human role in organizing the world in a, in a certain way. Now that said, humans, um, don't just kind of create time out of nothing, right? It's not completely arbitrary or completely conventional, but rather they do what we might call uh, manifest time, right? So there are these kind of unconceptualized patterns that, that form what we might call the ground of being, uh, and that time and, uh, and also other, other entities are constructed out of this. I talk in the book about how what I call this basic ground of being for the Maya is very similar to this conception of, of Tao in the early Chinese tradition, in which it's, uh, in, especially in the Taoist tradition, in which it's something that itself is ineffable, um, in itself, but can be accessed by humans in certain ways and can be, it can be conceptualized such that things uh, come about from this conceptualization of, of the Tao. And in, the, uh, in early Maya thought, this involves this concept that they call ordering or, or tzak, um, with the idea that when we order the world in a certain way, uh, or, or even when we measure the world in a certain way, that this, bring, that this, creates, uh, this creates new things, this act of ordering, is, is itself what completes the cosmos.
So what is what's the relationship then between the you know the constructed time that humans have an essential role in doing, and then the ineffable time or I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but um, that is out there sort of independently. I don't know. I don't even know if that's the right way to put it. But um, is is there another, uh, you know, reality? Maybe I'll put it that way. Um, and then there's this more manifest thing that we do. And um, uh, what's is is there any relation between them, or is just the other this other ineffable thing just like? doesn't even matter really whether it's there or not? I think there is, there is, there's certainly a relationship between them. In fact, we wouldn't be able to do what we do, right? We wouldn't be able to construct these cons- these things uh, through conceptualization if there wasn't this, uh, this ground of being. In, in a sense, it reminds me in some ways of this kind of, this kind of Kantian conception between the noumenal and the phenomenal, right? Something that's there and that needs to be there, but we don't directly access uh, as such, right? Um, there's a, there's a similar, similar idea here, right? That, that what we access um, are these kind of conceptualized things, right, that we've, in a sense, uh, kind of conventionally uh, constructed. But all of these are dependent on and, and, in a sense, built out of this kind of basic basic stuff, right, which can't in itself be characterized using any of the concepts that we impose onto it, right, in a sense, impose onto it, right? We, so we follow part of, the, part of the difficulty is that we follow these kind of patterns that are manifest in the ground of nature. But those patterns are things, and this is similar to what we see in the Taoist tradition, those patterns are things that ultimately can't be accurately characterized using concepts, using language, etc. For the Taoist tradition, one kind of important difference uh, for the Taoist tradition, it's we we can understand and grasp these patterns by responding to them through activity, right? So when we act in certain ways, right, the, this this shows our our kind of understanding of the patterns. Whereas here, in, for the, for the Maya, right, there doesn't seem to be that conception, at least from what we have in the text, right? This notion that behaving in certain ways, right, kind of represents um, these these patterns. But there does seem to be a similarity in that somehow we can understand and access them. And then we, uh, once we do that, we can manifest them in language. One way to understand this, um, sometimes that, one way that I sometimes use when I teach this is to understand, um, to think about things like um, natural laws or, or, or physical laws, something like this. So when we, when we're kind of Einstein coming up with uh, the theories of special and general relativity, right, that we we do, we're accessing something in the world that isn't kind of manifest, right, uh, right away, right? We don't see this when we look out at the world and we look at trees and, and, and houses and persons and things like this. But nonetheless, when, when Einstein constructs this theory, he's, he's manifesting something, he's, 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 offer, he's giving us something that is itself inherent in the world and allowing us through that construction of a theory to now access this kind of, this natural law in a different way that we, ne- we couldn't necessarily uh, do before. It's something something like this is going on in uh, early Maya thought as well. Okay, so so how how does this um, construction you know happen? Uh, I think you know a lot of the discussion of you know what you mentioned the daykeepers and there's this other um, discussion of the the seating of rulers and the development of of different calendars, right? You know, so a calendar, a, you know, a calendar is uh, a manifest or representation in some way of this constructed time um and you can have different different calendars right so uh, you know we just have one i mean so that's a interesting difference so can you say something about you know how we go about or humans or or mayan leaders or specific mayans who play specific social roles how the 
calendars and time are constructed? Yeah. So we so the idea is that there there are multiple given the kind of patterns that are there in the ground of nature. There are multiple ways that we might um, that we might that we might conceptualize this, or that we might kind of uh, uh, put bounds on on certain time periods, things like this. If we think about calendars, this is actually a kind of good example. Um, and so we actually do something much more like uh, like the Maya than, than we may think. For example, if you look at the kind of Gregorian calendar that we use right, to mark days, we also have uh, academic calendars, for example, right? Those of us in academics tend to think more in terms of those, right, than the Gregorian. Um, and, and, they, and they serve different purposes, and they're, and they're different ways that we can kind of, um, that we can define time periods and their, and their importance to us. With the Maya calendars, you have something very similar going on. Right? The idea is that um, you have, say, something like the Zolkin ritual calendar, and then you've got a kind of year calendar, and these are playing these kind of different roles, right? So we can we can we can organize time, or we can construct time uh, with particular ends in mind, right? A ritual end, or or kind of or ha- having an agricultural end, things like this, and the, and and the goals that we have are going to generally kind of guide the ways that we construct these calendars uh, in different ways, just like in the case of say the Gregorian versus the academic calendar. Right, but um, uh, but but we all of those different calendars that we have, you know, the academic calendar, they're all, you know, there's a there's a fundamental, you might say, you know, temporal calendar which is based on the physics of, uh, you know, the Earth spinning around on its axis and around the sun, and and so the there's kind of a fundamental temporal calendar if you want to i don't know if you want to even call it a calendar but uh there's this you know time at least i mean there's a whole metaphysics of time but let's just forget that for the moment and just say yeah you know there's this time that is occurring you know in the physical universe and then we build our calendars in relation to that you have a lunar calendar and you have the academic calendar all that stuff but that temporal you know that 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 time is not something that we construct. So I'm just, at least that's the you know that's the way you might think of it. And so um, do is is one of their do they only have these calendars or is there another conception below it which says oh and all these calendars are built out of these this this time which really isn't you know sort of up to us yeah so the all of these are built out built out of this kind of what i call this great basic ground of being right which is in itself something that uh, we might think of as temporal and it's not i think it's not all too different than than uh, than what we have for example for example you mentioned this kind of conception of time right as something that exists independently of these measurements but the way that we so it seems to me that we, we actually don't have a, a, such a kind of defined conception of time if we think about something like um, the atomic clock, for example, right? We're always defining times in term time in terms of the 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 particular events, right? So we look at particular times. I think that works this way, right? For 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 for, uh, for for certain kinds of decay to happen that are generally regular or something like this, right? And we have this kind of assumption or this idea that there's something regular behind this, right? But we never seem to access we never access that regular thing through the measurement itself. It's all it's all kind of looking at particular events and their regularity and how they're related to other events, things like this, which is how we generally define time. And it seems like they're they're doing something similar, but without the assumption that there is some independent kind of um, uh, basic uh, time behind any of these kind of uh, any of these 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 comparisons between various different events and and how they take place. But they think there's something there, but it's but but it's this kind of ground of being right, that I was talking about before that can be conceptualized in certain ways. 
So let me let me just continue along that that trend. Is this uh, so? There, there's when you say the basic ground of me. Is that the concept of of its that you mention that you talk about in the book, or is that a su- separate one? Yeah. So its is related to this, right? So the the way that I read all of these various uh, kind of central concepts like time and its and shul and others things like this are that they're 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 all dependent on this uh, on this ground of being, right? but the ground of being itself is something much like the kind of the noumenal or the Tao or something like this. Uh, which is which is which can't be characterized ultimately in terms of things like its or chul or or any of the other things that we want to talk about, but that, that's the basis of all of all of those. And so, in some sense, right, it seems like it's it's transcendent, right? Um, even though I kind of make this this argument that um, there's a single world, um, we can understand transcendence as the kind of the hiddenness, right, of aspects of, of, of this world. So you you've mentioned already, you know, that you know some people, although not you, you know think of the Mayan metaphysics as somehow where everything reduces to time. And you you argue against that. You say, you know, no, it's it's more of what you call a correlationist uh, metaphysics. Um, can you can you explain that and the, the difference between your interpretation and um, I don't know if it's a standard one, but it's one that's, you know, uh, an out, it's out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So there, there are a few. Uh, famously, uh, Miguel Leon Portilla uh, made this argument that um, that time is this kind of basic uh, element in Maya thought, and that other things like the gods or individuals, everything that exists, ultimately reduces to uh, to time. And so my view here is that um, it seems like in a number of the texts we have it, there's evidence that elements, everything can be understood as an element of time, right? So the gods or the rulers or each individual can be understood ultimately, as, or can be understood as time. But time ultimately can also be understood as those things. It seems that either le- neither level is the fundamental level, right? So um, they're, they're both one, an alternative way of, of understanding this, which I use this kind of Taoist uh, frame uh, to develop, is to, to say, well, maybe what's going on is that numbers and time and the gods and all these various things that are understood in terms of one another in the Maya text are all themselves ways of understanding this kind of ineffable ground of being right? rather than um, reducible to any one of those things. Right? So, so that um, if we understand the gods or, or, or particular ruler as identified with a particular time period, it's not that what the god most fundamentally is as a time period, but rather it's one way of describing that entity is in terms of the time period and another way of describing that entity is in terms of um, this particular this particular ruler. Right? Those are both ways of conceptualizing uh, this this ground of being. Okay, so what's the the correlational part? Oh, the the uh, the um, uh, the, co- the correlative uh, cosmology bit. Yeah. So the idea here is that the what the, there there are particular correlations between um, different aspects of the world right, as we as we conceptualize them and this is what makes this is what makes it possible for there to be transformations between things like uh, a particular ruler in a particular time period um, and a particular number things like this right and so the idea is that what makes sense of why all of those things can be the same isn't a kind of reduction from one to another but a particular correlative pattern right, um, that 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 connects one type of thing to another type of thing right that, that's that's the idea and which is something that I find it, that you find in Han Dynasty uh, Chinese thought in particular right with this with this notion of the the five phases right with the five with five phases being similar to the kind of elements theory in ancient Greece in which when you've got a phase that's represented in a particular object it's got this connection uh, and can produce other other objects of similar type okay I see that's that was helpful um so um 
there's this concept of uh, what you call embedded identity, which which uh, which which comes up at, at various points um, in the book. Um, could you explain that? Yeah. So uh, embedded identity, it's 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 an important part of this kind of correlative picture um, that I was talking about uh, before. And one of the one of the uh, concepts that's important here is this concept of, of seeding or or chum. Um, there are a number of images. Uh, I have a couple of these in the book, for example, um, that talk about the seeding of rulers or the seeding of time, um, things like this. And the way that this is understood, I argue, is in terms of embedding um, new identities into particular persons, particular things. Uh, that is adding potential, adding new layers to an individual thing, such that new entities are manifest within it. So the idea is that you can have a particular individual. Uh, say myself, Alexis McLeod, but and I can all, and I can be Alexis McLeod, but at the same time, when uh, the embedded identity is operative, I can also be, say, my my grandfather, and just be, and, and actually be identical uh, to my grandfather. And this happens not only in the case of persons, but also in the case of objects. And the 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 concept that's uh, often discussed here is the concept of, of substitution or cache. Uh, the idea is that. During certain performances, right, performances of the Popol Vuh or performances where uh, particular dancers or actors uh, play the role of one of the gods, they can actually become the, the people who are, are, are depicted rather than, uh, rather than depicting them. With the idea being that the reason they can become this, this uh, other, other individual is because they always include this kind of potential um, to be those things, given a different kind of conceptualization of the, of the ground of being. One, one way of understanding this, uh, I, I talk about this, uh, this concept of, the, of kin or the day in, uh, in, in Maya thought. And the, the glyph for the day actually isn't the, as it is in Chinese, the, the, the term for day is an image of, initially an image of the sun. In, uh, in the classic Maya glyphs, it's an image of a flower. With the idea seeming to be that the sun is, is in a sense contained in the flower because it's, the, it's a particular cause of the flower. There's this, uh, there's this, there's this view um, in uh, early and in classical Indian philosophy called Satkaryavada, uh, which is which holds that um, the the cause of the, any any cause is included in the in the effect, right? And so when in if I'm looking at the flower, right, the sun, the soil, all the things that cause this flower uh, are included in it, and it ends up becoming this view that everything is included in everything else. And so if that's the case, right, for the for the for the Maya. Then that flower is potentially a flower, and it's also potentially the sun, and it's also potentially anything anything else it could cause uh, as well. So one way of looking at embedded identity is in terms of if we look at this in terms of the person, um, part of what causes me is uh, you know all my ancestors, right, and the gods and things like this. And so insofar as I perform those um, activities that my grandparents performed or that the gods performed, I actually become identical with them as, as such um, in, this, in this performance. And so this is why you see, for example, um, on uh, Stele, uh, the manifestations of, uh, or images of particular rulers on the, on the Stele and Copan, for example, the ruler Washak Lujun uh, This was seen as not just a kind of representation of the ruler, but as being identical with the ruler. And so you'd see in, in uh, instances of warfare, uh, people would destroy uh, certain uh, Stele and and, uh, and constructions with the idea that they were they were they were destroying the ruler himself right by doing this right because this these objects uh, were part of were part of the ruler as such. So um, did 
that sort of makes so there's one thing I, I think I need clarification. So a cause, you know, at least as we conceive of this relationship is, you know, a cause is is, is necessarily distinct from its effect. Um, so that, you know, you, so I don't, um, so how do they reconcile this idea that, you know, the effect, you know, in the one sense contains the cause and then the other uh, idea that the the effect you know can be identified with the cause. Yeah. So what, what the idea is that we can see this if we see what's fundamentally going on is a particular kind of process, right? So if we think of something like um, the case of uh, the growth of a new plant or the, or the or reproduction in the, in the case of a person, something like this, we can see a, a kind of single a kind of biological process going on. And the idea is that where we de- where we decide to um, kind of make the boundaries between one entity and another, they're going to say is is in some sense kind of arbitrary. Right? We can see that, well, there's just a single biological process going on here. And so the idea is that what we call cause and effect is going to be based on, in some, in, uh, in, in part on how we define what the, what the objects are, right? That are the cause of the, causing the effect. So the idea, the, with the idea being that one way we can understand this is a single kind of process and where we carve, where we, where we draw the lines is going to be a matter of our concerns in, in, in part, right? Which is actually part of, um, what um, leads to this view of, of embedded identity as well, right? So whether I count as my grandfather or not, in part depends on uh, the concerns of the community, right? What role I'm playing in the community, whether I'm playing his role in the community, something like this. So are these are these boundaries like totally fungible, or are there constraints on them? Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a good question. So there, it seems like there are constraints uh, on especially especially when we think about this in terms of things like the ruler um, or the ways that that I what I might um, what I might substitute, something like this, and so it's not clear that I could that I can substitute some someone else's grandparents, something like this, right? Um, but it does seem like um, anything that's in the in my kind of lineage, I can I can substitute, including uh, things like like the gods, right? Because the humans in general, right, are kind of in this lineage of the gods, and so when there's kind of production of the Popol Vuh, right, many of us can 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 perform this role. This is part of the reason that um, that there's so much focus on the ruler in the classic period, with the idea being that the ruler has this kind of is part of this process or that uh, is connected to these various important figures who had this kind of ability to to reveal aspects of the world that the rest of us don't have so there are kind of um, there are um, there are boundaries on how broadly we can apply this right um, on what we what we potentially can be right so we have the potential to be identified with with a given number of things but not just anything right and this is a, ma- a matter of how the patterns uh, of the world are structured right? for example in, in, in which really kind of gets to the issue too about um, what's objective about the way that we say uh, construct time. So even for things like calendars, I think they don't want to say something like we could just do anything, right? We could just kind of create it in any way we want it. Right? We have to follow these inherent patterns of nature. The inherent patterns of nature themselves ultimately are ineffable, um, are things that we don't grasp in the usual ways. But it's tricky, right? Because as soon as we say something like that, well, then we have to ask the question, well, how, how are we able to do it? Right? How, how do we know that we've got it right and we've got it wrong, right? given uh, different particular concepts, right? And that's, that's a real problem in, the, in this tradition, I think, as well as in the Taoist tradition. Okay, yeah. So let me, let me just, so right and wrong, you know, let's talk about truth. I mean, that's one of the things. And, and um, you know, one of the interesting things that you, that you mention or that you suggest, I, I, I don't know if this is a fully fledged, um, you know, semantics for the Mayan glyphs, but um, 
you do mention at one point or more than one point uh, the idea of a theory of meaning uh, as one of substitution. I mean, you've brought up the concept of substitution before, um, but here in terms of the idea of, of of the glyphs and what they, what we would say, refer to certain things in the world, um, you suggest that there is really no reference relationship. Um, so could you could you explain the the meaning of glyphs? You know, in this alternative substitutional view, in in some way, I don't want to say substitutional because that has particular. Um, you know, a particular meaning in, in like formal logic, right? Um, but um, yeah, could you explain this, this way you understand the meaning of the glyph? Hmm. So it is, it, it is a substitutional view in the sense that of cache, right? Cache has substitution in the way that I described it with embedded identity, right? That's, that's kind of what's going on, I, I argue, right? That idea being that the glyphs aren't, aren't kind of signs, right? That, um, that, that, that kind of, uh, refer to particular objects, things like this, right? But that, but that through this issue of embedded identity, they become the objects themselves, right? So the idea is that the glyphs themselves can be seen as substitutes, as kish in this way, um, such that you can refer to, um, well, I want to say refer to, so you can, you can when, when, you, when you write the glyph for the god, for example, the god, in, and this is in term of kind of its, is contained in that glyph, right? Um, so that, the, that, that is the god, right? Or that is the ruler, something like this, right? Um, so the idea is that, a glyph for any given thing, the glyph for a city, the emblem glyph for a city, or the glyph for an individual, um, becomes that. It, it, it becomes that uh, that city or that individual. And the, the way that it does this is that it contains its its right. Um, the essence of the the ruler or the city or whatever we're talking about is contained in this glyph. Through glyph through the construction of this glyph, um, it, it's it's seeded in that in that sense, right? And it, it's kind of embedded in the in the same in the same way. So when we uh, when we encounter the glyphs, right? When we're reading the glyphs, right? We're actually encountering these uh, these objects, and this, in part, is I think the reason that um, so much kind of care went into the construction of the glyphs, and why part of the reason that the scribes um, and kind of artists in Maya culture were were kind of held in such high regard, because it wasn't just that they were recording kind of events, but they were able to uh, capture the essence of these objects such that they, that they could create them right through through the construction of these glyphs, whether it's on bark paper or whether it's on stele, something like this. Um, which, which raises interesting questions about, you know, between types and tokens, um, <laughs> uh, you know, are there, right. yeah, right. Uh, is there any indication of, were they aware of that distinction or? Yes, yeah, so I think that, so in, when you talk about the language, I think every kind of instance of a glyph is just that object. So the, part of what they want to say is that you can have this kind of represented multiply, something like this, right? And so the king, for example, Washaklo Junubakuil, can exist as the person who's talking to you, and he can also exist in the form of the gl this glyph and another glyph at the same time, right? It just becomes another kind of iteration, if you will, of that, that, that individual, right? That's, I think that's, that's the way that they're looking at it, right? They don't want to say something like that, the, that because generally what we're going to t take to be the case is that um, if there's some individual that exists at one time, there can't be something else distinct at that same time who's also identical to him. Um, and they want to say that, no, there could be many things, right? Um, in, a sense, in a sense, is extended in this way right, through these multiple different objects. And every time you've got an additional glyph, that's another extension of the essence of Washakla Jun Ubakawil. So it sounds it's it sounds like they conceive of uh, the gods as as universals. Is that would that be correct? Yeah, that's one way of that's one way of looking at how they how they uh, how they think about the gods, and not just the gods. I think, but but 
all the, these other kinds of fundamental as well, I don't want to call them fundamental, these other kind of aspects of ways that we can um, characterize the ground of being as well, such as number, time, all of these kinds of things, right, could be seen in, in much, much the same way. Okay. Um, well, that, that sort of raises the issue for, you, you also talk about their views of, of personhood and, and, you know, personal identity. And um, there's a couple of connected concepts there where um, you had the, uh, the idea, the general idea of its or, you know, essence. Um, and then there's a human form of that, uh, which is, I think, chul or something. Um, and then there's a aspect of the human essence, um, which is uh, a, a, uh, a social aspect or communal aspect. Could you, could you explain their view of, of human personal identity? Yeah, so so things like um, things like it. This this can be understood as um, as essence in general, right? That's not individuating, right? But it's something that um, that all humans share right? uh, in that way. Seemingly like this notion of vital essence, right? That you find in the uh, early Chinese tradition in terms of, of qi. Uh, and there's this other concept, uh, chul, which is which is uh, identified specifically with humans, uh, and it's usually it's usually associated with uh, with blood. And part of the reason for this is that in the uh, royal bloodletting um, ceremonies, the idea was that the blood, especially of royals, had a particular kind of power and potency um, that would reveal other aspects of the world, right? Because of its richness, right? Uh, in terms of in terms of this 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 tool, and so it can be more concentrated or potent in one person than another person. But it's not something that's kind of in, that's involved that 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 uh, represents individual features of of us. So there's this there's this other concept of of why um, something like a kind of uh, communal or social essence in that way, which we might see as linked with um, something like social identity, right, or or individuating features of of persons, things like this. And so when we think about um, things like roles or position or character traits, right, we can associate this with this is generally what determines uh, a particular individual's uh, why, um, while we at the same time uh, have this essence that we ultimately share. With uh, with with other with other humans as well, and one of the interesting things about this this concept of essence is one of the ways it seems to be understood is as that which makes things what they are. Right? This is the this is the idea, um, and and this kind of leads in the tradition, I suspect, uh, to something similar to to what it leads to in um, the Ch- early Chinese tradition, which is a particular conception of of truth. Um, so the idea is that. Uh, what makes an entity that entity is is its its, and the person who who is able to um, manipulate its or the itsam right the sage right the shaman in this sense right understands and can grasp what makes each thing as it is right the, or the essence of the thing, right? uh, which becomes to be understood as truth in the sense of, uh, of of a thing kind of meeting some or matching some particular ideal, and so the, part of what's going on here is that they're understanding truth I think in this kind of broader sense, in the way that we see it in the Chinese tradition and in certain kind of um, outside of philosophy, even in English as well, when we, th- when we say things like the true person or a true friend, something like that, right? The idea being that this is something that possesses the essence of a, a, a person or a friend, something like this. And then they extend this in the same way we see in the, in the Chinese tradition um, to a consideration of, of language, right? So just like you might have the essence of um, the, 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 the friend or the person, you can have the same thing for a statement. Um, and so in a, we can understand linguistic truth in that sense as the it's or the, the, the essence of the statement specifically, right? which ties it to these other 
this other this kind of broader conception of truth as it applies to um, other objects. So, um, I mean, this is more of a clarificatory question. Is in all these talk of essence, is is are these hexeri type essences, individual essences, or are they just like my little bit of the global essence or universe? You know, are, so are yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's more the latter, right? So something like a hexaity, right, would 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 uh, would would point out this object as this object, right? Um, it would be something that's its alone, something like this, right? So it isn't meant to be something like that, right? It's just something that's much more kind of uh, general, right? And the kind of second option that you mentioned, right? The idea that it might be concentrated um, in a certain place, right? But it's not something that marks me out as individual as individually me, right? In the way that something like a hexaity would, uh, something like why uh, it is something that would do this, right? Uh, or in kind of figuring out location within community, things like this. Um, but but it's, a, it's much more general. Um, and, and it's can be, uh, it's, it's available. Uh, so it's is also something that, that other things other than humans have and can be manipulated um, and, and kind of uh, uh, used in order to see these hidden aspects of the world by people who really, who kind of understand the essence of, of things, which are the, these itsam or sage. Okay. I, guess, I mean, I guess that makes sense that it would not be a Hayek-Sadie type concept because of what you had said before about um, embedded identity. Um, it would be very difficult to have that view of embedded identity if you also had a view of, you know, I mean, it, it would just be like the, the whole thing just wouldn't fit together. Right, right. You have to say a thing has multiple, multiple distances, something like this. Right. right? It, it just wouldn't be coherent. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean they couldn't hold it. But anyway, um, so let me just uh, um, let me ask about um you have a there's a couple of uh, future projects or, or you know indications of where to go from here at the end of the at, at the end of the book. Um, so, for example, um, the relation between Mayan thought and and Aztec thought. Um, uh, could you could you say something about about that particular direction? I mean, are there are there close? I mean, most of your reconstruction has been in relation to Chinese thought, right? Not Aztec thought. And, you know, one might ask, well, you know, why wouldn't you do it with Aztec thought um, since it seems to be roughly, you know, at least closer in, you know, geographical distance, um, you know, um, so what's the relation between the Mayan thought and the, and the Aztec thought? Um, so there's a very close relationship. In fact, there's influence, right, in, in kind of both, uh, both directions. In fact, some of, the, some of the work that I'm doing right now focuses on just that um, so one of the uh, only other people in philosophy I know who's working on this area, Jim Maffey, um, who works on Aztec philosophy, I've kind of been in discussions uh, with this this about, and the, the 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 kind of difficulties there. I mean, they're they're it's it's close, right? But in, in a way that makes it t- a little bit more tricky as well, right? Because you're always trying to kind of pull out, okay, what here is Maya, what here is Aztec, what here is something different, something like this, um, and so. It makes it, it it makes it a little bit harder. It just in the same way as the, the case as in the same way as looking at some of these uh, the post context texts and right and trying to kind of compare this to classic classic period texts and figure out uh, which one is classic and which one is uh, which one is post contact. I think it's a, it's certainly a, a useful project and one that I'm that I'm uh, that I'm definitely committed to looking more into. Right? In this project, I was I was mainly concerned with trying to figure out okay what's what's going on here concerning classic period Maya thought, right? And so I didn't want to get too involved in, into uh, into Aztec thought and kind of reading too much of that into it. Um, but I think the the kind of 
one of the interesting things that we could do with this is definitely, of course, read it in the using as a frame other forms of Mesoamerican thought. Right? That's maybe the kind of the natural way of of of, of pursuing this project, um, and certainly something that I'm that I'm working on now. Including um, another way, right, would be uh, to read this in terms of uh, Western thought, right, as a, as a as a frame, um, which is which is a kind of common way that you see a lot of non-Western texts read. Um, part of the reason that I read this text in this way is to using classical Chinese thought is to suggest a kind of alternative way of approaching uh, these these texts, including uh, which includes right um, the 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 kind of uh, the benefit that we see particular problems like the problem of truth, right, um, knowledge, uh, you know, essence, things like this in in different ways when we use these different traditions as frames um, to to encounter things like the Maya tradition, which will of course happen in case of the in the case of the Aztec tradition as well. Okay. Um, and I, I assume part of that might be the impact of the, you know, what you say, the contact, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the arrival of the Spaniards and what, what that did to, to both civilizations, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so another, another um, uh, topic that you also sort of raise um, is, you know, at the end is, is a, a plea sort of for, for you know, de-Westernizing of, of philosophy. And, and certainly, you know, we have both been trained in, in that tradition, the analytic philosophical tradition. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there has been, you know, I, I would say in recent years, uh, you know, attempts to, uh, you know, do more with, with Chinese philosophy, certainly with, with Indian philosophy and, and now with Maya and, and, and African philosophy and so forth. Um, um, so, you know, t- two points here is, you know, how do you see that, um, you know, how do you see that as best kind of proceeding? Um, and, you know, especially given this since given that a lot of people are reluctant to even, uh, include say a Chinese thinker on their syllabus because, you know, there, nobody's, you know, many people are just not familiar with it. Um, so there's, there's, you know, how this might proceed, but also, um, uh, there's a, the general, you know, problem, uh, you might say of just, you know, who gets to say what, um, which has come up in other, you know, in, in other, uh, philosophical controversies, you know, public controversies about, you know, um, racism or feminism uh, or uh, transgender identity and, you know, the things where, you know, certain, you know, when some outsider, you know, for, you know, just say a, you know, uh, you know, some Westerner talking, you know, as an expert on Chinese philosophy or, you know, this sort of where you're, where the person doing the analysis is not a member of, the tradition itself and has no connection to it other than a, you know, basically an intellectual one. Um, and that's a, you know, you know, many people, you know, see that as a problem is, you know, who basically, you know, who are you to tell us, you know, what we think and so forth. Um, so how do you, how do you see the de-Westernizing, you know, possibly proceeding and how do you respond to that worry um, of, uh, of, of, you know, groups, who have, you know, been marginalized. I mean, clearly that's the case um, in, in with, with these non-Western philosophies, you know, that, you know, who, who are you guys to, you know, kind of 
uh, you know, tell us what our tradition is like. Right. Um, so I think there, there are a couple of things going on with that. One of the one of the interesting things I've been kind of thinking about recently is this is this I, the second uh, kind of idea that you talk about about you know who gets to to say these things and you know issues of cultural appropriation things like that. Uh, my own view on this, right? So is that so? There are a couple of ways of responding to this idea that um, that there's a, a kind of a certain a certain kind of background that one needs to have in order to understand, in order to properly be able to to put forward a particular kind of thought. I think that that really is a kind of is a mistake, right? Um, and so we, when we think about things like uh, studying Descartes or Kant, something like this, right? Hardly anyone, right? I, I've never heard it said, at least, uh, that one needs to be French, right, in order to understand Descartes, or one needs to be Prussian, right, in order to understand uh, understand Kant, something like this, right? And so I think part of, in part because the, there's the idea that when one tries to understand the thought of Kant, right, one isn't trying to understand the thought of Prussian or German people, something like this, right? Um, in a sense, I think we, the same thing should be the case in, uh, it is the case, right, in, uh, in Chinese thought or, or early Maya thought, something like this. Now, there is some sense in which one can study, right, or one can try to understand um, the thought of Maya people or what they think right now or uh, their attitude, something like this, which I think would be a, a kind of very different project, right? And maybe one in which the kind of uh, the voice and authority of a Maya person would certainly be um, something that you have to have to you know, take account of, right? If, um, but I think in, in, in understanding uh, Maya philosophy or understanding Chinese philosophy, really it's, it's, it's no different than understanding um, Kant or, or Descartes or something like this. And I think part of the reason that sometimes we think it is, right, it's, I think we're well-meaning, but I think it really is a, is a kind of relic of colonialism and the othering of non-Western people, right, and the idea that non-Western modes of thought are culture-bound in ways that Western thought isn't culture-bound. Um, and so some, sometimes the response to this, when we recognize this, has been to say, well, Western thought is culture bound too, right? Um, that, you know, Descartes and Kant and all these kind of things were, were just as contained in their culture as ch early Chinese and uh, Maya philosophers. But my, I think a better response, I think that's kind of the wrong response. I think a better response would be to, to take the other kind of way out and say something like, well, let's, maybe we should think of Chinese and Maya thought as just as universal as uh, um, as, as Western thought, right? Um, it, rather than kind of rather than um, isolating isolating each of them, um, and so I certainly think there's a so I think really uh, kind of my general view about this and things like cultural appropriation is that those things in themselves aren't problematic. I think what the problem is, and there is a real problem that 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 people are concerned about here, but I think the problem is. Um, is not valuing certain people, right? So while we might say something like, I'm going to study Maya thought, and I'm going to study Chinese thought, and I think these things are great, and I'm going to interpret them, but I'm still going to then turn around and just like restrict um, access to to what I'm doing from Maya people or Chinese people or something like this, right? I think that, that's the problem, right? Or kind of... Um, are, 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 are the ways that we think about the individual people, right? Which is independent from the ways that we think about Maya thought or Chinese thought, something like this. And so I think one way, and I actually think that kind of, broadening our conception of what philosophy is um, and the ways that we engage in kind of history of philosophy can actually help with that as well, right? With the idea being that, you know, once, we, if, if we can do something like, um, say, you know, something as easy as, you know, um, hire more people teaching non-Western traditions in, in philosophy departments such that, and require it to be studied, right, for our, for our PhD students, things like that, such that when we, uh, when we construct conceptions of a history of philosophy, we expect it to be, to include things like Aztec, Maya, Chinese, Indian, et cetera, uh, thought, right? Um, I think that can go part way toward um, 
also being more accepting of different kinds of people, right? And uh, diversity in this in this kind of different sense. Uh, well, well, we could continue talking, but uh, we're we're out of time. So um, I like to end with a final uh, question, which you may have already partly answered, at least, which is, uh, what's on the horizon for you? What are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm all over the place. Um, basically, I, it's hard for me to stay in the same project or the same area kind of for for you know for more than one book or so. So I just finished a book on uh, on the the Han Dynasty uh, Chinese philosopher Wang Chong, and I'm working right now on a project on uh, madness in early China um, and how this kind of connects to the ways that they thought about uh, about personhood um, and the value that some uh, that some thinkers uh, actually uh, attribute gave to to uh, to this concept of quag or, or madness. Um, so that's one project. And then I'm also uh, working on another book um, with a, an old student of mine, uh, Josh Brown at Mount St. Mary's University, um, on transcendence and substance in the early Chinese tradition. So those are kind of the, the, the things that, the multiple ways I'm being <laughs> scattered right now on these various different projects. Very good. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to hearing more about um, about all those projects. They sound very interesting. Um but we are we are out of time now, so um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us at New Books and Philosophy about your new book. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. And thank you for, uh, for inviting me. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Alexis McLeod, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy and also in the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. We've been talking about his new book, Philosophy of the Ancient Maya, Lords of Time, which is just out from Lexington Books. This is Carrie Figdor speaking for New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.